Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Downstairs History. I've got a good podcast for you. i got Saul David back on the pod. You heard him earlier this year talking about the Anglo-Zulu War. Well, he is a man of many talents. He can dash between periods. He's been on the pod talking about Operation Thunderbolt, the raid on Entebbe Airport in Uganda in 1976. But this time he is back because he's got a new book out about a battle that was raging 80 years ago now. It's called The Crucible of Hell. It's about the Battle of Okinawa. It's the last great battle of the Second World War. But it was a battle that fundamentally shaped the decision of the American government about whether or not to drop a nuclear bomb. And it is a harrowing, extraordinary tale of vicious fighting. Saul and I met up just for the lockdown to talk about this. And as ever, he's, he's one of the best in the business. He's incredibly engaging and, and tells an extraordinary story with the flair of a novelist, but the integrity of a professor. He's a professor of military history at the University of Buckingham as well. If you're looking for history content during this lockdown, please go to historyhit.tv. It's, a, it's our history channel. All the back episodes of the podcast are on there exclusively. You can get hundreds of history documentaries on there as well. There's been more and more added all the time. I'm just really proud of one we've added recently on the some of the greatest speeches in the history of the House of Commons. And you can get the whole thing pretty much for free. Use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free, and then you get the first month, which is one pound, euro, or dollar. That'll take you through till June. And goodness knows, we might be out of this nightmare by then. So uh, please go and check that out. You can also go and check out History Hit Live on the Timeline YouTube channel. Uh, just Google Dan Snow History Hit Live Timeline, and we've got lots of wonderful historians we're talking to three times a week, live. You can ask questions live, and we'll try and do our best to answer them for you as well there. So everyone, look after yourselves, stay home. In the meantime, here's Saul David. Enjoy. Saul, good to have you on the show. You've been on once before, but I'm never in person. We've never that personal chemistry. I know, it's good to it's talk good. to you in person. Good. So, Monster, Monster Campaign, iconic in the States, not at all known about in the UK. Why did you decide to write Okinawa? For that reason. I mean, I knew very little about the Pacific War. I'd worked on a book that was published in America recently about special forces. And they touch on the Pacific War. They go to the Aleutian Islands, which is a kind of ghost campaign because there's no actually fighting done, done on there. But it, but it piqued my interest, I suppose. And I thought, well, what actually happened? It's, it's so little known in Britain. The Americans, of course, know a lot more about it. But even they, I think the main thrust of their interest is, is the D-Day and, 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 and the Northwestern campaign after that. So both America and Britain, but particularly Britain, have concentrated really on the West. And this is the East. And I wanted to know what went on and how did this story unfold? Because the fascinating thing about Okinawa is that it 
from the start of the battle, it's just before the end of the war against Germany, the end of the war in Europe. And it, of course, goes all the way to the end of the war in the Pacific. So it crosses the, you know, it, 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 it crosses those two boundaries. And lots of extraordinary things happening, like the death of Roosevelt halfway through the battle. And, and all these changes feed into what is an extraordinary moment in history. Right, let's talk about the, how do we get to Okinawa. There's an island hopping strategy. What is island hopping? Yeah, island hopping. I mean, if we go all the way back to Pearl Harbor, you can see that Pearl Harbor, if you look at, if you look at the Pacific, it's an enormous distance, thousands of miles. And Pearl Harbor is pretty much in the middle. And the Japanese have got all the way there. They've struck Pearl Harbor in December 1941, brought the Americans into the war. And from that point onward, it's really the uh, Americans' mission to get all the way across the rest of the Pacific uh, to Japan. So how are they going to do that? Their strategy is twofold. They're going to island hop through the central Pacific, but also they're going to move from Australia up through New Guinea and the Philippines. So you've really got these two prongs. And where those two prongs come together is the island of Okinawa. Okinawa is important because it is actually Japanese territory or it is Japanese territory. It's it's a it's a, a prefecture of ja of Japan with the forty seventh and 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 uh, most southerly prefecture. It of course had been taken over by the Japanese maybe sixty or seventy years earlier, but it's now fully integrated in the into the Japanese political system, and therefore it's the first time the Allies get to a bit of Japanese soil proper. What's significant about the island of Okinawa is it's pretty big. It's seventy miles long, and it is really going to form a massive floating aircraft carrier for the Americans and the Allies. In fact, the British are there in, in, in decent numbers with the British Pacific Fleet, the biggest fleet we ever put together during the whole of the Second World War, and it's virtually unknown, the story of the British Pacific Fleet. But they're going to use this island as a hopping point for the final attack on Japan. Lots of people have heard of Iwo Jima, uh, which is a bit earlier. Is, this, is, is Okinawa kind of another, another leap forward from Iwo Jima? Just one step on. Iwo Jima's battle has taken place a, a couple of months earlier. A bloodbath. I mean, arguably the most brutal fight on the Pacific. Its casualties don't, uh, don't rank with Okinawa, which was the bloodiest fight of the Pacific in terms of numbers, because uh, more, more soldiers are involved. It's a bigger island. There are more Japanese defenders. And the Japanese, to be truthful, are fighting tooth and nail, because this is, as I say, part of Japan proper. But Iwo Jima was still pretty terrible. And the casualty rates on both sides were, were horrific. And it's one of the few battles where American casualties almost mirrored Japanese casualties. But just two months later, having uh, now taken Iwo Jima, they, the, these two prongs finally meet on Okinawa. And, and if they can get Okinawa, really, they believe the end of the war is in sight. Why is that? Because of the ability to launch air, um, even greater volume of air attacks on the home islands, or because it will be a jump-off place for an amphibious assault? Both things. It's only 400 miles from the southernmost um, home island of Japan, Kyushu. Honshu, which is where uh, Tokyo is, is a little bit further north than that. But Honshu is only 400 miles away. A lot of air assets, a lot of Japanese air assets on Honshu, uh, military bases on Honshu. If they can uh, attack Honshu, which is the plan, there was a plan in place, they, they were going to put it into uh, operation in November 1945. And, uh, you know, we'll come on to that bit of the story, I'm sure. Uh, but first, they need to take Okinawa. Once they've got Okinawa, they think they can launch this final assault. So what are we talking? What are the Japanese defenders up to at this point? Are they, are they cut off from supplies? Are they sort of starving garrison? Or are they quite well supplied? They're pretty well supplied because they are still quite close. The, the Americans never sever the uh, sea route until the battle actually starts. And the fifth 
the US Fifth Fleet is there in force. Um, so the Japanese are getting supplies through both by ship and also by plane pretty much until the battle starts. Again, the, the, the distance from Honshu, the, the most southern Japanese home island, is important because 400 miles is very short for a, for a flight. You, operation, f operational flights over the island, uh, they are going to use an enormous number of planes, many of them kamikazes, to help defend the island. But they've also got a sizable garrison on the island itself. And their orders are? Fight to the last man. I mean, th this is the end game of the Second World War. The Japanese, interestingly enough, haven't given up at this point. Uh, wh when you look at the documents relating to what's going on at the high command, at the highest level in Japan, there's clearly a strategy. Whether, whether you think, um, with the benefit of hindsight, the strategy ha had any chance of succeeding is another matter. But the strategy was to inflict such a crushing defeat on the Americans, particularly their fleet, that it'll force them to the negotiating table and that the horror that is facing the Japanese uh, regime and particularly the Japanese emperor, which is unconditional surrender, will be, they'll manage to bat that away and they can negotiate some kind of peace that will maybe, they think, even allow them to keep some of their colonial possessions. Meanwhile, the Americans are now bringing astonishing, overwhelming force to bear. Uh, can you give me a sense of the, the, you know, their, their naval assets and, and the, the men that were all thrown to the battle? Enormous numbers of uh, planes, ships and men are involved in this. Half a million soldiers carried by 1,300 uh, craft of various different sizes. The, the fleet in being that was there numbered 20 aircraft carriers alone. Enormous numbers of battleships, cruisers. I mean, this is the biggest uh, sea armada in terms of firepower that's ever been assembled. And it was all for one purpose, which is to land an army big enough on Okinawa to capture the island. Clearly, that was going to happen. So the, the Japanese defenders, they knew it was going to happen. They knew the fleet was coming close. So their, their end game is twofold. They're going to use their air assets to try, mainly kamikazes, to try and uh, deliver a crushing blow to the, to the American fleet. But secondly, they're going to fight a defensive war of attrition on the island itself, which is going to bleed the Americans white. This is very unusual tactics for the Japanese. They're very aggressive in their tactics. All their training in the 1930s is to fight, you know, wars of movement. Now they're going to hide themselves away in uh, pre-constructed bunkers and very cleverly uh, fortified systems, all of which with interlocking fire. And almost originally, um, I mean, almost uniquely for this type of fighting, if, if the Americans took one particular feature and they then looked over and there'd be another feature ahead, normally once you've got one feature, you're reasonably secure and then you, then you plan for the next attack. What happened on Okinawa is that the Japanese had created a killing ground so that even when the Americans had taken one feature, the Japanese were inside it. So that as soon as they went over the lip into the next valley, they would be shot from behind. So this, this brutal killing ground they created was going to cause the Americans a lot of trouble. Just harrowing stuff. Now, also, we, we, you mentioned there, but we talk about the British Pacific Fleet, this gigantically powerful fleet uh, in terms of Brit in British history terms, but that's still dwarfed by the American allies. But uh, tell me about the British fleet there. Well, it's 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 huge. It's got uh, it's got pretty much all of our all of our serious sea assets at that point. A, a number of aircraft carriers, battleships, cruisers, destroyers. I mean, it's a huge fleet in itself. But of course, it's as you say, it's dwarfed by the American fleet. It comes under the direct orders of the American Fifth Fleet, but it is operating as an independent entity. You know, this kind of sli slightly loose arrangement that the British have often had when they're 
fighting alongside the Americans. And partly, I think, to protect it from the most serious casualties that they were beginning to suspect, it's given a subsidiary role. Its job is not actually to assault Okinawa itself, but to keep the uh, Japanese quiet in a, in a group of islands even further south than Okinawa, where there are a lot of uh, Japanese air assets. So its job is really to knock out those airfields and to make sure that there's no uh, attempt at reinforcing Okinawa from that direction. And no British ground troops take part in the battle? No British ground troops take part. You never know, one or two might have slipped in. There might be the odd Britain actually serving in American uniform. I suspect there probably was, but no, no official formed units take part. And talked about the landings. I mean, are they opposed landings right from the first minute of the campaign? No, it's very interesting. The landings take place on the 1st of April, uh, April Fool's Day, 1945. Love Day, as it was called. Love, of course, being the code word for the, for the landing day. Uh, most of the, a lot of the Marines in particular who are fighting there, the 1st Marine Division, which has been fighting all the way through the Pacific War, I mean, they've been in one horrific fight after another. The most recent for them being at Peleliu. They weren't at Iwo Jima, there was different Marines then, but they were, they were at the, an island called Peleliu, which was an opposed landing and an absolute bloodbath. And there were bodies and, and knocked out landing craft all over the beach. And pretty much to a man, understandably, the Americans expected the same thing to happen at Okinawa. What actually happens is the landing's unopposed. Now, uh, Buckner, Simon Buckner, the, the American general commanding the American uh, 10th Army at Okinawa, thinks he's hoodwinked the Japanese, thinks he's got one over them. And he writes in his diary, you know, they've made a big mistake. We've landed unopposed. You know, now, that, now they've really got it. Now they've really got trouble. In reality, this was the Japanese strategy. We're not going to fight them on the beaches. We're going to wait in these pre-prepared positions, which they won't be expecting. And when they finally come onto them, we're, we're going to uh, cause a lot of casualties, which is exactly what happened. And so we have to think of it as just a, a small unit, attritional, grinding, like almost like Passchendaele 1917, just fighting over bunkers and little tiny features. I mean, it's ter a terrifying way of making war. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, and, and um, you know, so you, you've got various things that do bear similarity to, to the Western Front, actually. You've got this these incredibly strong defensive positions that... You, you have to fight, as you say, tooth and nail for to get through. The, the uh, Japanese are even, the fortifications were even more sophisticated than they were on the Western Front in the sense that they're actually dug into mountainsides. And the only way you can get into them is literally by fighting your way in. I mean, at one stage, the American troops were literally pouring gasoline into bunkers. They were using flamethrowers. They were using explosive charges. They were burning the Japanese defenders out. And the Japanese, of course, had orders to fight to the last man. And that's pretty much what they did. So very few Japanese surrendering. Uh, about 7,000 out of the original garrison of 110,000 uh, surrender at the end. But almost all of them, interestingly enough, were Okinawans. That is conscripted into the Japanese army. The Japanese soldiers fought pretty much to the last man, including the commander, uh, Ushijima, who committed ritual suicide with his chief of staff. And that pretty much summed things up. Now, this would be bad enough, Dan, telling this tale and certainly researching. It was a pretty harrowing experience, I have to say. I've read some pretty bad first-hand accounts over the years um, in the course of writing military history books, but none of them compared to this. And the single worst accounts were the accounts that uh, concerned the civilians, because what's unique about Okinawa in the Pacific War is the fact that the civilian population is pretty much intact. On Iwo Jima, they've been cleared out. Some of the other islands, there are some population, but nothing like the size. So if we think of an island with a population of about 375,000 civilians, a third of them perish in the fighting. Uh, and a lot of those people die, not because they are victims of the fighting per se, but because the Japanese have convinced them by propaganda and other means that the Americans are going to rape and burn and pillage and that they might as well commit suicide. And an enormous number of them do that. And it's absolutely harrowing. I remember reading one diary account by um, uh, a 15-year-old Okinawan boy who survives. Uh, he is convinced by Japanese soldiers that the Americans are going to do them all in and that they might as well commit suicide. Uh, and he's, con he's, he's convinced, he's, he's encouraged to kill his own family. And he describes the moment he's killing his mother and he said, she was crying and I was crying too. I mean, it's, it's as bad as it gets. Bloody hell. Um, what, what proved, the, what was the key to American victory? Was it just throwing more and more bodies forward and as you say, losing gasoline, small arms? Or, or, or was, were they able to use air or naval gunfire to their advantage? They used everything they had. They used, uh, they used napalm from the air. I mean, interestingly enough, you know, I, I don't know why, but I, I was, I, I'd convinced myself that napalm certainly didn't come in before Korea, but actually it was used at Okinawa. They use an enormous number of ordnance from, from artillery fire, from uh, ship fire, firing from ships. They also have a lot of ground attack aircraft on Okinawa once they've taken a couple of airfields at the beginning. But, but despite all of that, pretty much most of the tough fighting is done by the infantry. So you've got some very good troops on Okinawa. You've got a lot of the Marine divisions, which are veterans of the fighting for the previous couple of years. But you've also got some very good army troops. And what's interesting about the 10th Army is it's a combination of a, a Marine Corps and an Army Corps. And there, there's no question there's a lot of competition between them 
to make the greatest gains. And, you know, you might be led to believe that the Marines were far and away the best troops the Americans had in the Pacific, and they were good, but actually the army were very good on, on Okinawa too. But it was a brutal fight that uh, resulted in the heaviest American casualties of the Pacific War, and some of the heaviest in their history. What kind of numbers are we talking? 12,500 killed, another 37,000 or so wounded, and here's the kicker, 26,000 battle fatigue casualties. That is people with PTSD, people who simply couldn't go on. And that will give you a kind of sense of the brutality of the fighting. I mean, that percentage compared to overall casualties, I've never seen it that never. high before. So it was, well, in that case, suggests it was among the most harrowing battlefields that humans have ever found themselves on. Yeah, I mean, one of the, you know, from a historian's point of view, if you can take the emotion out of it, which of course you have to try and do, it, it, it has some of the finest first-hand accounts written of the whole war, I think, and certainly of the Pacific War. Uh, and one of the reasons uh, the writing is so moving is because of the experience of some of these soldiers. So you've got a man like um, Eugene Sledge, who's very well known in, in America today because of the um, uh, first-hand account, the book he wrote about his experiences during the war. And some of the, his descriptions of the battlefield and what he had to go through and men like him had to go through. And what's clear ab about Sledge, and he admits this himself, is the reason he wrote the book is to try in some way to deal with the issues, the nightmares, the, 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 the after effect of what he'd gone through, that he was still suffering from 40 years after the end of the war. Is, it, is the fact that Okinawa wouldn't be, well, Perhaps it is in America, but it's not as well known and sort of celebrated as your, your D-Day and your um, bouncing the Rhine and taking Germany. Do, do, do you think that that, did they get home and feel that the sacrifice wasn't being honoured in some way? I think, you know, you, you mentioned the First World War earlier, and I think there is some similarity here. We, we of course, do commemorate the First World War, and Okinawa, I'm sure, will be commemorated in America. But it's not a battle that's looked on with any fondness for a lot of the reasons I've already explained. It was a meat grinder operation in which the American commander, who was fighting his first battle, Simon Buckner, I think he was a bad appointment. He, he used very little imagination. It was, it was corkscrew and burn, as they termed it, which was literally frontal assaults, uh, again, like the First World War, when he was being encouraged to uh, use amphibious assaults. And he had, of course, some good amphibious troops with him to land behind the Japanese front line so that they would have opened up a second front. And he, he refused to do that. He, he insisted that logistically it wasn't going to be possible. They couldn't get enough supplies off the beach. But all excuses in my view. He, he was a cautious general fighting his first battle. And as a result, the Americans probably took many more casualties than they needed to. But because it wasn't a well-fought battle and because there were so many casualties, I think it is not remembered with any fondness. And yet, nevertheless, it is a hugely significant fight. Not only the last major battle of the Second World War, but a battle that ultimately led to and encouraged the American high command and American politicians to use atomic weapons. Because it was so bloody, they couldn't bear the thought of doing it again on Japanese homeland. Well. Exactly. They knew what was coming. This was, a, this was a foretaste of what was going to happen when they landed Operation Olympic planned for November 1945 and an even bigger landing. So that was just Honshu. That's the southernmost island in, in November 1945. Move forward a few months to March 1946. They're going to land even more troops 
probably two, maybe three million soldiers are going to land on those two islands. And they are facing a, a Japanese army that's at least two million strong, maybe three million. They were expecting casualties of uh, a minimum of a million people. Uh, and, you know, a good chunk of those would have died. So you can see when you get into the sort of numbers game and also when you understand how harrowing the experience was for a lot of the soldiers, many of whom are going to have to go on and fight in Japan, the use of atomic weapons, if it could end the war at a stroke, was was going to be a, an easy decision to make. And I think, you know, Truman talks about uh, when he when he talks at the time and afterwards about the decision to use the nuclear weapons, uh, it wasn't just a question of saving American lives, it was a question of saving Japanese lives too. Uh, we should come back to the um, kamikaze, the effect. Did the Japanese plan have any merit at all? I mean, it, it, um, they didn't know about the uh, atomic weapons. In a way, I suppose it did dissuade the Americans from launching an, an invasion of the home islands. Um, and, what, and what about the effect on the fleet? Did they manage to, was there any attritional action on the US fleet? Or? There was. Um, if it hadn't been such an enormous fleet, it may have actually served its purpose. 36 ships sunk, um, more than 200 badly damaged, including a number of aircraft carriers. I mean, interestingly enough, no aircraft carriers were sunk, which was the, which was the jewel in the crown and the chief uh, uh, target for the, metric. the Japanese kamikaze. Actually, interestingly enough, the Americans had set up a very clever system, a, a really a, a necklace of a defensive system round Okinawa and round the fleet, an early warning system that enabled them to put up a lot of planes in the air and take out a lot of these kamikazes. But you couldn't take all of them out, and a lot of them did get through. Yes, they, they uh, caused a lot of trouble with the fleet, but never enough uh, sinkings, really, to deter the battle and to force the fleet to withdraw, and certainly never enough to encourage the Americans to the peace table. So it was optimistic, but of course it was desperation times towards the end of the war. What's interesting is how many Japanese servicemen were prepared to uh, sacrifice themselves for their nation. And, you know, we, we can get into a whole new topic here, Dan, but the mindset of a, of a Japanese, certainly then, possibly still today, is that to actually devote yourself to the service of the state is a completely understandable thing. It, of course, you know, there are lots of reasons for that, partly religious, partly the Bushido system, warrior code of honor, in which you would subsume individuality to the greater good of the of the Japanese empire, of course, as it, as, as it was at that time. So, you know, we might imagine that people had to be <laughs> moved at gunpoint to these planes. Not a, not a bit of it. There were an enormous number of people prepared to volunteer to do that. Are you able to match the richness of the US sources with the Japanese sources? You know, because if very few people are surviving, do we, do we know what it was like for the Japanese defenders fighting a totally hopeless battle, which then was just followed by their own suicide? Um, there are some, there are some, believe it or not, there are still some incredibly rich sources. The Americans, uh, much to their credit, immediately after the war, uh, tracked down, I mean, most of them were in their custody anyway, anyone senior in a senior position, both in the high command in Tokyo, but also any senior military man, all the way down to sort of colonel and major uh, rank, and interrogated them or question them for historical purposes. Of course, they wanted intelligence at the time, but this is a, this is a an absolute goldmine for historians, uh, which is in the American records. You also get an awful lot of uh, first-hand accounts by the Japanese themselves, uh, the Okinawans on the island. I mean, I wouldn't say it's 50-50 in terms of the sources I use for obvious reasons, but uh, a big chunk of the book is the battle from the perspective of the Japanese and the Okinawans. And I was very lucky actually to, to travel to Okinawa to see the 
location, but also to find a, a lot of wonderful sources out there that had been written by Okinawans who'd survived the battle. And uh, they, uh, you know, the one I've already quoted, they were among the most harrowing sources um, of the whole project. How long does the battle last? 82 days, so just under three months. Starts in the 1st of April and ends on the 22nd of June, 1945. And when is the decision made to drop the nuclear bomb? I mean, the two are linked, are they? The two are linked. The key meeting is on the 18th of June. Uh, Truman, who's only been president for a couple of months since Roosevelt's untimely death in April, um, just after the battle has started, asks his senior commanders. He, he wasn't aware of the Manhattan Project. He didn't even know there was a nuclear weapon. And he, of course, was the vice president, which says a lot about American politics, if you ask me. But in any case, um, towards the end of the Battle of Okinawa, they know that the next stage is to launch the invasion. And he asks his senior military people, is, is there any alternative? What are we going to do next? And is there any alternative? And interesting enough, it's one of the more junior people on the, at the meeting, a, a guy called McCloy, who was Assistant Secretary of State at the time, who said, well, actually, we're, we're developing this weapon. Now, by this point, Truman was aware of the weapon, but the, the, the real caveat at this stage is, will it work? So the agreement made at the end of that meeting is, um, we're going to launch the invasion, we're going to prepare for the invasion on the 1st of November, but we're going to keep an eye on this new, this fantastical new weapon. And if, when it's trialed, it works, we'll consider using it. And the Battle of Okinawa is key context for that decision. It's absolutely key context. They talk about it in that meeting. They talk about it in that meeting. Uh, Churchill mentions it when he discusses the, the, uh, the, that crucial moment during the Potsdam Conference where Truman receives word from America that the first test has worked. Those two coincide. He then tells Churchill what he's planning to do. And Churchill, of course, gives him his blessing. To Churchill, it was a, it was a, you know, it was a, a done deal. There was no question that they would, they would, there would be any moral qualms as to use this weapon. He called it a gleam of sunshine. If we can use this weapon to stop the war and save not only, in his view, up to a million American lives, but also half a million British lives. What we forget is that an awful lot of British soldiers are going to take part in the assault on Japan. Um, then they should do it, uh, and that's of course what happens. Thank you very much, Saul David. The book is called? Uh, Crucible of Hell, um, and then the subtitle, Okinawa. And it's out now. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money makes sense but if you could just do me a favor it's for free go to itunes or wherever you get your podcast if you give it a five star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review purge yourself give it a glowing review i'd really appreciate that it's tough world out there law of the jungle out there and i need all the fire support i can get so that will boost it up the charts it's so tiresome but if you could do it i'd be very very grateful thank you even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.